0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Axis, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Erwin Winkler, a producer, writer, and director whose credits include The Wolf of Wall Street, Raging Bull, and The Rocky Franchise. Mr. Winkler has been producing Martin Scorsese films for over 40 years and has a brand new book coming out May 7th, A Life in the Movies, Stories from 50 Years in Hollywood, which I was lucky enough to read in preparation for this episode. In our conversation, we discussed a number of projects, from the challenges of making a little $1 million movie called Rocky, which ended up winning the Best Picture Academy Award in 1977, Irwin's creative relationship with Martin Scorsese, and the experience of working on Goodfellas together in a brief exchange regarding his next movie, the highly anticipated gangster film The Irishman, starring Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Mr. Winkler, thank you so much for joining us on the show. I wanted to begin our conversation talking about the Rocky series, starting with Rocky in 1976, and spanning all the way to Creed 2, which was released in November of 2018. The original Rocky is a classic now, but it wasn't a guaranteed hit at the time. About the movie, you had this to say, quote, In 1976, America had gone through a decade of unrest, chaos, and disillusionment. Along came a film that said, forget your past, believe in yourself, and you may be a million to one shot. That was Rocky. Of all the projects we could choose to begin our discussion, I picked this one as a proof that story and emotion are some of the strongest tools in the producer's toolbox. And given your agreement with United Artists to make the movie for $1 million, you had to be as efficient as possible, shooting the film between Philadelphia and Los Angeles, In 29 days, in real locations, finding very creative ways to fill the sports arena with extras, and even reshooting the ending to find and understand the emotion the movie needed. So why do you think the film was for audiences the right movie at the right time?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, as you started with that quote, that's why I think the film was for the audience at that time the right film to see, because it represented a whole a uh, uh, really different feeling about uh, what America was about in 1976. We w- we were gone through the Youth Rebellion, the war in Vietnam, Watergate, any number of really social and political uh, challenges. And uh, we came along with this film that said, you know what? If you believe in yourself, uh, um, you can accomplish a lot more than uh, you're looking at your past and what you didn't do. And I think uh, it came along at the right time and was embraced because of it, I think. Also, it was a wonderful, wonderful entertainment at the same time. So it wasn't just a a lesson in morality and uh, social uh, uh,
0: attitudes.
1: It was an
0: entertainment. I was just wondering what were some of the most logistical and technical challenges of trying to keep everything at a budget? Again, we talked about the fact that you couldn't build sets; you're shooting in real locations between Philadelphia and, and Los, Los Angeles.
1: Angeles. Yeah, well, we did we did some kind of crazy things because. You know, you need a lot during a fight. You need a lot of people in the background to make it look like it's real, especially if you're dealing with a kind of a championship fight. So you have to get people out there in the shadows and lights on them, so you make it look real. So what we did is we went to a uh, assisted living facility and we uh, bust in all these kind of old folks to fill up the seats, and then we uh, auctioned off the television and said every hour or so to keep the people uh, rooted in their seats and then gave them a lot of snacks. And uh, that's how we filled up the arena. By the way, at 4 o'clock every day, we had to get them back for their meds. So uh, that's we, we shot close-ups after that. So that's basically how one, one way we economized. Also, we didn't have money uh, in the famous, uh, uh, and it's famous now, I think, because it was a scene that was empty when Rocky and Adrian go to a skating rink we couldn't afford to hire extras that knew how to skate because you have to pay them a premium we also would have had to rent our skates and then we'd have to shave the ice after every take and it would have been impossible so we couldn't afford it so we said well you know what we'll make it it's a holiday night uh thanksgiving and uh we'll we'll make believe that the uh skating rink is closed on thanksgiving which is never would have happened. It's a big night at ice skating rinks. And uh, uh, Rocky will give the uh, uh, some money to the janitor and he'll let them skate. And the, and the scene is memorable because it was just the two of them in this empty ice skating rink. So things like that that we managed, uh, we, we also were able to get a, uh, a meat packing plant to let us shoot in there. And we have them beating the meat, uh, uh, which was again just a fortunate uh, piece of luck that was uh, based on uh, not having any money to do a more fancy uh, location. Aren't
0: you skating? Nah, I ain't skating since I was 15. You know, that's when I started fighting when I was 15. Skating's kinda of bad for the ankles, you know? Yeah. You're a pretty good skater, aren't you? You know how I got started fighting?
1: Huh?
0: No. My father, he's uh, my old man.
1: He was never too smart. He says to me, you weren't born much of a brain, you know, so... Uh, You
0: better start using your body, right? So i become a fighter. My mother, she said the opposite thing. What'd she say? What'd she say the opposite? She said you weren't born much of a body, so you better develop your brain. Did she say that? Can I
1: ask you a question? Absolutely. Why do you want to fight?
0: Because I can't sing or dance. Hey, yo. Don't fall! Don't fall! Hey, that was terrific. I'm pretty good at this. Let me ask you a little bit about managing projects and how developing new material is a key part of your job as a producer. The stories in the book reminds us that you really don't know how successful our project is going to end up. And again, I I can imagine that it's in your interest to constantly be looking for new material, whether you're searching for ideas or books or personally developing screenplays with writers. So could you tell us how many projects do you try and develop at the same time? And what's your sense for recognizing what makes a good story? There's two parts there. But number one, when I read the newspaper this
1: morning, I glanced through all the sections wondering if one of the stories was worth making into a movie. So it's something after all these years I kind of automatically do. I just kind of look through a magazine or look through the the uh, Sunday supplements and see what, what makes itself into a story or what book might be a new or a play on in the theater that might make itself in the movie. So I just kind of look at everything as a potential uh, for a movie, and basically, uh, you know, there are ideas that are out there every day. You just have to find a way to tell a story. And usually it's about a, a person who is in some kind of conflict, and, and I think that's what uh, usually pushes me into the area where I'm uh, ready to do it. Uh, again, in the case of Rocky, it's, it's a, one, a million to one shot. In the case of uh, New York, New York, it's a, it's a case of a career as an artist. Uh, so there are always all kinds of different the reasons why uh, the character itself is in a state of conflict and, and what they're going to do next that keeps the audience interested.
0: Allow me to ask you about another great project, which is obviously Goodfellas from 1990. Now, the story of how Goodfellas was received by test audiences is a great example of how much is riding on the outcome of a movie leading up to its release. About the testing of Goodfellas, you have this to say... Quote, the first scene of Goodfellas was one of the most violent scene on film. During a previous screening in Encino, I counted 42 walkouts in the first few minutes, and two-thirds of the theater was gone by the end of the film. It's hard to blame Warner Brother executives who wanted a great deal of the language and violence cut. Close quote. So, I can imagine how studios often try and talk you out of taking creative risks, and I was curious to ask you, how do you manage to protect not just the director, but serve the best version of the story? And how do you try and balance the business decision-making with your storytelling instincts?
1: Basically, um, you have to always be on the side of the talent. The studio uh, executives uh, come and go. Often they're right, sometimes they're wrong. But you have to believe in the, the writer that you've engaged and the uh, actors that you've engaged that their instincts are good and that they are talented. Uh, that isn't always the case, but you have to believe in it, or else you shouldn't start it. You shouldn't hire a writer if you don't think the writer is going to function for you properly. And You shouldn't hire a director or, or an actor uh, similarly. So I think that's one of the prerogatives you have as a producer, and when you're directing you have the same capacity to control who you cast in a part if you miscast a part which we've done it's your fault and not the uh, the actor the actor will do the best he or she can if they're not you know basically the right person for the job it's your fault because you uh, misjudged it
0: The book is so full of incredible anecdotes of dozens and dozens of movies, you know, from Raging Bull all the way to The Wolf of Wall Street. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your relationship uh, with a great director, and that is Martin Scorsese. Quote, My 40-year relationship with Martin Scorsese is of particular and great significance. Through his enormous gift of directing, he has had a profound influence on my filmmaking. The challenges of risk-taking, its rewards and disappointments, have been life lessons for me beyond the filmmaking process. Our friendship has added to these chapters and my life." Close quote. So, why do you think you and Mr. Scorsese have had such a great creative chemistry? And because you are also a filmmaker in your own right, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from him as a director?
1: I think taking chances, Uh, believe in what you're doing and be willing to run the risk of failure. He doesn't have failures, but I think I've had my share of him both in producing and directing. But I think you've got to believe in your own ability, your own uh, uh, talent uh, and not compromise those talents because everybody will be picking at you a little bit saying you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. I think Steven sonne wrote a great uh, line where he says, you know, everybody's gonna tell you don't go walk on the grass. I think you gotta walk on the grass. You gotta take some chances. You gotta try things all the time. And Marty is a great risk taker and always has been. And I think that's the great lesson that I've gotten in my relationship with him. I understand you're a brother, Mike. Yeah, yeah, glad to meet you. I heard you paint houses.
0: Yes, I do. I want to begin wrapping up our conversation by briefly asking you about your next project, The Irishman, which is expected to be released in theaters and Netflix in the fall of 2019. In the book, you lay out the challenges of managing such a large production, you know, shooting from September 2017 to March 2018. You guys have hundreds of locations to scout, 340 scenes, which is about twice the number of most films. What did it take for you and Mr. Scorsese to put together a cast led by Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, who came out of retirement for the movie? Putting the
1: cast together was was, uh, somehow eased by two factors. One, it was a terrific script, and the parts were wonderful, and uh, uh,
0: they all want to work with Martin Scorsese. And I'm fascinated to ask you about the de-aging technology that is mentioned in the book and that is going to be present in the movie. You explained it this way. Quote, We decided our principal actors would play all the ages of their characters. In the case of Bob De Niro as Frank Sheeran, he plays him from 30 years old to 80, but it would take technology and money. In August 2015, Bob redid a scene from Goodfellas for the technicians at ILM, which by the way is a great visual effects company, and they told us they could digitally de-age De Niro. When we saw the results three months later, we realized it could be done. Close quote. So The Irishman sounds like one of the largest and most ambitious productions of your career. So how has it been watching the evolution of the visual effects for the movie from 2015 all the way until now?
1: Well, uh, two things. When I saw the most recent cut, uh, the de-aging was not complete. So I saw it with the actors playing their correct age. So I can't answer that part of the question because we don't have all the visual effects yet. And Mr. Scorsese is not going to put in that partial visual effect. So when they all complete, then we'll see it that way.
0: My last question to you regards the legacy of the wonderful films you've committed to the big screen. What do you think has kept you so busy over the last 50 years in the business? And what is the conversation like with yourself in regards to the great work you've produced and the work you're still looking to produce?
1: Well, I really don't look at it that way. I like to quote uh, when I did The Right Stuff and I once asked Chuck Yeager how it is to break the sound barrier, to be a test pilot and do all those great things uh, with an airplane. And he said, "I, I don't think about it, I just do it. And I think the same way about making films as far as I'm concerned. I don't think about legacies, I don't think about the future, I don't think about the fast, I just do it day to day, make movies.
0: Again, I want to remind listeners to go check out your new book, A Life in the Movie Stories from 50 Years in Hollywood. I'm so glad I got to read it, and I know that listeners are going to love it too once it's released on May 7th. Mr. Winkler, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, and I really do wish you the very best for all the projects to come. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And that's our episode, folks. I would like to thank Mr. Winkler for sharing his time to record this episode and calling in from New York and for his rep team who helped us set this all up. If you like the podcast, we ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Spread the word as it really helps us bring you month after month new conversations. Find us on Twitter and Facebook and make sure you're the first to receive inside updates on the list of upcoming episodes. And trust us, there are some great ones coming. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.